0: an empty tomb. There's a little old Christian lady living next door to an atheist. Every morning, the lady comes out onto her front porch and she shouts, so the atheist can hear, praise the Lord. The atheist yells back, there is no God. Yet she does this every morning with the same result. As time goes on, the lady runs into financial difficulties. She has trouble taking care of herself. She can't afford to buy food. She goes out onto the porch, She prays to God for help with her bills and especially for groceries. And then she says, praise the Lord. The next morning she goes out onto the porch and there are all the groceries she'd asked for. There's there's milk, there's eggs, there's bread, there's meat. And of course she says, praise the Lord. The atheist jumps off from behind a bush and says, ha, I bought those groceries. There is no God. The lady looks at him, smiles and shouts, Praise the Lord, not only did you provide for me, Lord, you made Satan pay it all. (laughs) Well, that, I kind of feel sorry for the atheist in that story, actually. Not sure why. But that story illustrates how subjective religious thinking can actually be. Her mind is made up. No matter what, she's going to interpret circumstances through the eyes of a theist. She believes in God. His mind is made up. No matter what, he's going to look through the lens of his atheism. They both probably lack some objectivity. Even the Christian lady probably lacks some objectivity. But both are making a fair point. God does not want you and me to be making decisions about Jesus and the resurrection with bias and subjectivity only. You hear what I'm saying? He does not want us, even as Christians, making decisions about Jesus and the resurrection with bias and subjectivity only. Truth and historical facts are necessary. Our faith is to be rooted in objectivity. Sean McDowell talks about this in a book with his son. Jesus' resurrection either happened or it didn't. It is objective reality, and so it cannot be true for one person and false for another. To prove this point, Sean McDowell related the following experiment. He said, I placed a jar of marbles in front of my students and I asked, how many marbles are in the jar? They responded with different guesses, 221, 168, and so on. Then after giving them the correct number, the correct number was 188, I asked, Which of you is closest to being right? They all agreed that 168 was the closest guess to 188. They understood and agreed that the number of marbles was a matter of objective fact and not one determined by personal preference. Then I passed out Starburst candies to each student and I asked, Which flavor is right? As you might expect, they all felt this to be a nonsense question because each person has a preference that was right for them. That is correct, I said. The right flavor has to do with a person's preferences. It is a matter of subjective opinion or personal preference. What flavor you like, not objective fact. Then I asked, and this is important, even for people on this side of faith, are religious claims objective facts like the number of marbles in a jar, or are they a matter of personal opinion, like one's candy preference? Most students concluded that religious claims belonged in the category of candy preference. I then opened the door for us to discuss the objective claims of Christianity. I pointed out that Christianity is based on an objective historical fact, the resurrection of Jesus. I reminded them that while many people may reject the historical resurrection of Jesus, it is not the type of claim that can be true for you but not true for me. The tomb is either empty on the third day or it's occupied. There's no middle ground. This isn't a preference issue. It's either true or false. Before anyone can grasp the transforming power of the resurrection of Jesus, he or she must realize it is a matter of objective fact, not of personal preference. That is critical in creating a foundation for our faith. The Bible is not afraid of scrutiny. It never has been. It expects it. In fact, the Bible is amazingly honest about doubt and unbelief about many of its followers. The Bible is loaded with people, places, events, dates of those events, who was in power during those events, etc. It doesn't make a lot of claims that are private. It has all kinds of claims that are extremely public. And that's unusual in religious writing. And it's because the Bible is rooted in history. It's written as historical narrative, as objective fact. It just happens to have teachings about God in it. But it's narrative. It's religious history. Listen to this. This is what makes the Bible very unique. All religions claim some sort of revelation or word from God. Buddhism depends on the profound insights gained by Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha, during his moment of enlightenment while meditating under a bodhi tree. So one individual under a tree getting revelation. That's the claim. Hinduism looks to the Vedas, passed on to the first man at the dawn of time. Islam says that the angel Gabriel dictated to the prophet Muhammad the very words of God. So these are individuals who all received everything from God, one person alone. Not very testable, is it? Not very verifiable. On that criteria, I can start a religion. It's kind of exciting. Probably be a cult, but I could start one. Christianity claims something very different. A series of events about Jesus' life, death and resurrection, and God in history, which are said to have taken place in public, in dateable time recorded by a variety of witnesses. It's as if Christianity places its neck on the chopping block of public scrutiny and invites anyone who wishes to come and take a swing. Our whole faith was openly recorded as history, so it could be debunked at any time in the last four or 5,000 years. The resurrection gives us tremendous detail, not something you would do if you're trying to deceive others. It's something you do if you're recording history. The detail, the level of detail screams historical narrative or objective fact. And I want to look at one of those resurrection stories with you. It's the one in Matthew. If you have a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 27. If you don't have a Bible, there's probably one near you in the pew. Grab that and turn to page 25. About three-quarters of the way through the book, it's going to start over in on page 1, and it's on page 25. So the first book in the New Testament, the book of Matthew, chapter 27. We're going to begin in verse 57 because it has a lot to do with the preparations that were made to sort of control Jesus' dead body. Very important as you set up the resurrection narrative. Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 57. When it was evening, so this is the night that Jesus died, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth. And he laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. And Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the grave. Now on the next day, the day after preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate. And they said, sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I'm going to rise again. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, he's risen from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard. Go, make it as secure as you know how. They went and made the grave secure, and along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. That would have been a Roman seal, authority of Rome saying, don't tamper with this. Now, after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave, and behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Don't be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He's not here, for he's risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he was lying. Go quickly and tell his disciples he's risen from the dead, and behold, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you'll see him. Behold, I have told you. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them, and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And Jesus said to them, Don't be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. Now while they were on their way, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. We'll stop there for now. Just three simple points. An empty tomb, it begins with a historical and crucified Jesus. Now Matthew gives us an extensive account of Jesus' trial and crucifixion, one of the longer accounts as does Mark, as does Luke, as does John. So we have four different accounts. And, and if you overlap them, you have the full story. Some people have made a big deal out of the fact that these accounts will mention different people at the grave and so on. They don't all match. It's because people are telling the story from their perspectives. They're leaving out details that others include. You just overlay the four stories and you have the full account. And FYI, these aren't the only accounts that indicate that Jesus was crucified. If you want to play skeptic for a moment, a whole variety of non-biblical writers actually are aware of this and refer to it as well. Last week, we examined many extra-biblical sources that talked about the life of Jesus, and I wanted you to see how Jesus is authenticated throughout history outside of the Bible as well. Here are a few that narrow their focus to the actual crucifixion. So if you just say, well, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're trying to start a religion. Can we really trust them? Okay, let's trust Roman historians who actually hate Christianity. First one who is fairly friendly, this is a Jewish historian named Josephus. He said, And when upon the accusation of the principal men among us, he's talking about the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, Pilate had condemned him to a cross. So Josephus, a Jewish historian, is saying outside of the scriptures, Pilate had Jesus crucified. Those who had first come to love him did not cease. In other words, his disciples kept on following him. And then Josephus says he appeared to them, restored to life. So Josephus, outside of the scriptures, is saying Jesus was seen, resurrected. All right, well, maybe Josephus became a Christian. Some speculate he was a Jesus follower. Let's look at Roman historian and Senator Tacitus. He didn't like Christians at all. Just after the end of the first century, he referred to Christ and his execution by Pontius Pilate. So a non-biblical source talking about Pilate putting Jesus to death. How about the Jewish Talmud, which refers to Jesus' crucifixion this way, and this is a Jewish Talmud not friendly to Christianity, not believing Jesus is the Messiah. The Talmud says they hung him on the eve of Passover. And many others refer to Jesus generally, but these allude to details of the crucifixion. So Jesus was a man who walked the earth, the Bible says it, extra-biblical sources say it, he was crucified, the Bible says it, Extra biblical sources say it. He was a person in history who died. Thallus, historian in eighty fifty-two, Julius Africanus, a couple centuries into the into the New Timing Method, and Flagan. All speak about the darkness that accompanied the crucifixion when Jesus was crucified. From many countries around Israel, people saw the darkness. They said stars appeared from noon till three. It's the darkness talked about as Jesus hung on the cross. Three secular historians refer to that moment of Jesus' crucifixion. They thought it was an eclipse, they didn't know how to explain it. My point is, Jesus existed and was crucified. Biblical writers speak of it. Extra-biblical historians speak of it. They all leave us on Friday late afternoon with a dead Jesus and a lot of details about how he got there. Crucified at the hands of Pontius Pilate. Talked about in the Scriptures. Talked about outside of the Scriptures. That's necessary as we establish the basis for the resurrection. So Friday, without dispute, biblical writers... Jewish writers, Roman writers, Jesus was crucified, Jesus was dead. Now the key is controlling that body, seeing what happened. And all the things that were done to prevent a resurrection actually become the foundation for our faith in it. An empty tomb validated by a series of unusual precautions. Our second point, recovered body, a secure tomb, legal threats, the Roman seal, and an armed guard. Now here's where the evidence for the resurrection just grows exponentially. And I just love this stuff. If I wasn't a pastor, I thought about being a lawyer and I think I really would have enjoyed that because I enjoy a good debate. I know that shocks you. But I could make a strong argument that we have more evidence for a resurrection than a crucifixion. Actually, I could make a very strong argument for that. How? Because there are so many circumstances surrounding what happened to Jesus' dead body. And I want to investigate those. First one is the body was recovered. Now you say, what do you mean the body was recovered? Well, normally crucifixion victims are taken down from their crosses after they're dead. And we know when Jesus and the two people next to him on the other crosses, uh, they were put to death. The the other two, they, they broke their shins, I believe. And what happens is when you're hanging on a cross, the way you stay alive because your lungs start filling with fluid is you have to keep pushing yourself up to breathe. And so the soldiers broke their legs so they no longer could do that and they naturally suffocate. So the Romans were very good at crucifixions. They knew how to end people's lives. They did that to the two next to Jesus. With Jesus, they took a spear and shoved it up into his chest through his abdomen and he just bled out. And I believe he was already dead before that anyway, but they made sure. When people were dead after they'd crucified, the Romans would either leave them up to be an example, like don't mess with Rome. So often they were left up as object lessons for a while and they would be scavenged by birds and whatever. But eventually they were taken down, and these were taken down very quickly. Typically, when people were taken down from crosses, they were thrown into an open pit grave. They weren't even buried, because they were typically slaves and criminals. So they didn't necessarily have family coming to rescue them. In fact, I suspect the place they would have been thrown into would be Gehenna, which is a word for hell in the New Testament, but actually it's a garbage dump outside of Jerusalem. Jesus has used it as a metaphor for hell. Geh, valley, Hinnom, valley of Hinnom. Valley of Hinnom. And that would have been a place where probably these bodies would just be thrown and they would have been scavenged. That was normal following a crucifixion. But Jesus had a following. He had friends in very high places. So there was a wealthy man named Joseph of Arimathea. We know from other passages, Nicodemus as well. And both Joseph and Nicodemus were part of the Sanhedrin. They were part of that ruling court that actually sentenced Jesus to death. They were just the ones who didn't agree with it. So they're the sort of the, the silent minority that really was concerned probably for their own lives as well, but they'd become private followers of Jesus. So Joseph of Arimathea goes to Pilate, and he asks for Jesus' body. What's interesting is, in one of the other passages, Pilate actually questions the centurion to make sure Jesus is dead. So the centurion is there, or he sends for him, he says, okay, is Jesus dead? If he's dead, give his body to this man. Pilate granted the request. And this is huge because it's the beginning of the proof of the resurrection. The fact that he wasn't thrown into an open pit grave. The body was recovered, which means now it can be controlled and protected and watched. And the second evidence is this secure tomb. Joseph had recently procured a tomb. And tombs for the wealthy were not little plots of ground that you might buy at a graveyard. Um... You know, some of us want that, some of us don't. Didi Dee Dee keeps telling me she just wants to be cremated and doesn't need all that. So I just tell her, because she's kind of paranoid of like being underground and waking up. So I always tell her I'm in a barrier and put an air tube down there, which is just totally cruel and unchristian, but I do that. Anyway, so back then they would, uh, okay, back with me, back with me. You can pray for me later, all right? I'll pray for her too. So a secure tomb. You would, you would buy a cave, basically. You didn't buy a plot, you would buy a cave. And the cave would be hewn out of limestone rock. Much of that part of the world has a lot of limestone, so it can be easily carved. So wealthy people would buy these caves that would then house their whole families. They're like little mausoleums, basically. And so he had just bought one of these, and they, they had a four or four-and-a-half-foot entrance. You go in there, and you kind of walk back there, and there's room for maybe six or seven bone boxes in the end, or, and bodies can lay on slabs until they dry out. Then you, the eldest son, lucky the eldest son, got to go in after a year and take all the dry, bones and put them in a bone box and take care of dad or whoever. And so Joseph had just bought one of these graves. This large stone disc is uphill. The grave makers would have put it uphill a little and put maybe a log or a rock in front of it. So it was easy to get it in place. You just had to dislodge that log or rock and then it would roll in place. But once it's in place, it's almost impossible to dislodge. And that would protect you from grave robbers. That issue in fact was the primary concern on Easter morning of the women who were going to visit the tomb. Remember in some of the passages of scripture, they're all got all their spices and everything to sort of embalm and put around Jesus and they're saying, "Who are we going to get to help us to move the stone so we can pay our last respects to Jesus and love on him?" In fact, we actually have an idea of the size and weight of this stone. This is the beautiful thing about ancient manuscript evidence. Uh, which we have tens of thousands of manuscripts of parts of the New Testament. It's a wonderful thing. There's more manuscript evidence for the New Testament than there is for any other book in antiquity, and nothing is close. A library in Cambridge, England, possesses an ancient manuscript of Mark 16.4. So they've got one of the oldest manuscripts of Mark 16.4. It's in Cambridge. It's called the Bizet Manuscript. And in the margin, so it's not the Bible, it's in the margin there's a descriptive phrase about the stone. And the margin, again, not a part of the Bible, but it likely came from an eyewitness because it means in ancient times somebody decided, I can't make this into Scripture because it isn't, but I want people to know this, so they put it in the margin. It says this, it was a stone which 20 men could not roll away. Jesus' body was placed on a stone ledge in Joseph's tomb. The rock Or log that held this three thousand to four thousand pound disc, what engineers estimate it would have to weigh to cover that four and a half or five feet, maybe a foot thick. That three or four thousand pound disc was dislodged; it rolled into place, and Jesus is secured. Next, we've got this Roman seal, which is a legal threat, and an armed guard. And I love this. And I'm going to treat these together. In verse 62 to 66, those who were skeptical of Jesus, those who were his enemies, came to Pilate. We read this earlier. The day after preparation, the chief priests, the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate. Hey, we remember when he was still alive. He predicted his resurrection. Give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, the disciples may come and steal him and say to the people, he's risen from the dead. In other words, we heard about this resurrection threat We want to make sure that nobody, you know, plays a trick on everybody and deceives all the people. So Pilate said to them, have a guard or you have a guard. Now, I want to clarify this a little bit. What I love about this is their paranoia plays right into God's plan. Guard the body. Knock yourselves out. Please do guard it. Put a whole army there. It helps us. Now, there is a question of who this guard was. Because the Jews in the temple had a security force, and it was called the temple guard. Also, Pilate has his own guard, and that's a Roman guard. And the religious leaders go to Pilate, and they're asking for a Roman guard. Now, the problem is the language, the, the sort of, I believe it would be the verbal declension here have a guard, like take a guard, one of mine, or you have a guard, is exactly the same in the Greek language. You can't differentiate except by context. So the words, you have a guard, in other words, do it yourselves, or have a guard, take mine, would look the same in the Greek language. But most land with Roman soldiers here because only Roman soldiers would have had the authority to seal the tomb. Temple guard couldn't have done that. They had no legal authority. The Greek word here also, which I think would indicate a Roman guard, is custodian. A custodian is a small contingent, four to 16 Roman soldiers. They're trained to fight off a much larger force. I think each one defends about six feet of ground. I believe they would fight in a square at times against a much larger force. It would have taken closer to the 12 to 16 of them, however, to move a three or 4,000 pound limestone disk uphill. So they would have had to, if they're going to seal the tomb, put the authority of Rome on it, they would have had to go to the tomb. They would have had to remove the disk, get it to go a couple of feet uphill, go into the cave, identify the body of Jesus because that's what they're guarding, so they have to identify it, put the stone back. They then took a cord and affixed it with clumps of clay on both sides of the entrance. And the wet clay then, over this cord, would be stamped with a Roman symbol. Which means to tamper with this is to tamper with all of the authority of Rome. They then slept in shifts with the sleeping guards in front of the stationed ones. So if you're gonna rob a grave, you know, you're really gonna move a three or four thousand foot you know, or pound stone. That's gonna to be tough in the first place. But if you're gonna do that, they you know, walk through a sleeping group of guards and their fire, and then go to the four that would be standing guards. So you'd sleep in shifts, four would stay awake. Now get this, if they fell asleep, the common penalty for failing in a situation like this as Roman soldiers is if you fall asleep, you get burned alive in your clothes. I call that highly motivational, all right? When the elders of Bethany Chapel told me you get one bad sermon a year, number two, you get burned alive in your clothes. I was motivated. I was motivated. I stopped taking days off. Church here is tougher than it is in the States. They were motivated to guard a dead man. They had the easiest job in the Roman Empire. Guard the body of a religious leader who died and whose movement is in disarray, whose disciples are hiding, thinking they're going to get the same fate. He's behind a 4,000-pound rock He's been crucified. He's bled out. He had a spear shoved through his chest. His tomb is sealed with the authority of Rome in a foreign vassal state that's been humiliated for between four and seven centuries. That is not a tough job. Problem. He's God. Death couldn't hold him. And as the women came to dress his body with spices and love. That Sunday morning, an earthquake woke the city. An angel visited the grave and rolled the stone away. The soldiers fled. The opposition research was created right then and there. After what we read in Matthew, the story continued. Just after that, in verse 11, as these, while they were on their way, some of the guard came into the city right after Jesus rose from the dead and they'd seen the bright light and the angel and the earthquake. They reported to the chief priests all that happened. So these soldiers, this contingent, this custodian, went right to the chief priests who had met with Pilate They said what had happened. When they'd assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, you are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. In other words, you won't be burned in your uniforms. They took the money, did as they'd been instructed. This story was widely circulated to this day. A movement was born. It wasn't a movement built on memories like, hey guys, we lost him. But let's like, let's create a movement based on our favorite miracles. Let's create a movement based on Jesus' best teaching moments, even though he's dead. Or maybe some of the best campfire stories that didn't make the scriptures. Let's create a movement. No, you would never create that movement. All the disciples feared for their own lives. They were ready to go back to fishing and carpentry and everything else. This was a movement built on a resurrected Jesus who appeared over and over and over on that day and after that day. That's why the church could not be stopped. It was a group of people who had seen a resurrected Christ, which is the third point. An empty tomb proven by his many post-resurrection appearances. I'm just going to list them. John 20, appeared to Mary Magdalene. Matthew 28, to the other women. Luke 24, to Peter. Luke 24, to two disciples on the Emmaus Road. Luke 24, to the ten disciples. John 20, to Thomas and the other disciples. John 21, to seven of the apostles. Matthew 28, to all the apostles. Acts 1, to all the apostles. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, to James. believe Jesus' brother. And 1 Corinthians 15, also, verse 6, the granddaddy of them all, my favorite passage on this, it's not in the gospel narratives, 500 people at once in Galilee. What does the opposition research do with that? In fact, it's very interesting because the Bible is very honest about people's doubts. By the time 1 Corinthians is written, you're probably 20 or 30 years after the resurrection, I would guess it's in the 50s AD, I'm not sure about that, but not a real late book people were already starting to doubt the resurrection. You know, it's 20, 25 years later, people are like, yeah, I don't know if that really happened. Maybe we can have Christianity without a risen Jesus. And Paul said, whoa, whoa. And we'll talk about what he said in a moment. He's like, yeah, no, Jesus rose from the dead, and we don't have any faith without it. But then he also said, Jesus appeared to 500 people. It was only 20 or 25 years ago. He said, if you want to go to all the Starbucks and all the coffee shops in the Middle East, you'll be able to find people who were there in Galilee. There's 500 of them. Most of them are still alive. And Paul makes that point. Some are asleep, dead. Most of them are alive. Won't be hard to find an eyewitness. That's his point when he wrote Corinthians. Acts 1-3 says there were 40 days' worth of appearances. Now, I would say, based on other passages of Scripture, we have a sliver of what happened in Jesus' life. The Gospels actually admit that. We have very little of what happened in Jesus' life. We have the highlights. If Jesus is alive for 40 days and we have 11 appearances, we could have 50 to 100 appearances that aren't listed. I don't think he was hiding. Acts 6-7 The opposition research has been flipped. Jerusalem's priests are converting in large numbers in the early church. That's the opposition. The priests are turning to faith because they know Jesus rose from the dead. The resurrection emboldened, the fragile movement in hiding into the boldest religious movement in history. An empty tomb made every one of those scared apostles willing to be boiled in oil, crucified, crucified upside down, run through with a sword put in the middle of the arena dressed in animal skins and killed by lions, you pick the death." They were willing to go through it because they had seen a resurrected Jesus. Just a couple of apps as we close. First, there is no benefit from the cross without the resurrection. Now, I've never been a big fan of liberal Christianity. I don't understand it. Like if this isn't true, like the way it's presented, I'm watching Major League Baseball or the NFL. I'm not spending my time in church. And Paul made that point in 1 Corinthians in the same passage I was mentioning. Basically, there's no good Friday without Easter. Friday's not good unless you have Easter. The cross was about payment for sin. When Jesus hung on the cross... When he said, it is finished, he was saying, I've paid for sin. When darkness covered the earth for three hours and you could see stars at noon on that day, it was a sign of God's judgment on the person of Jesus. When Jesus cried out to his father, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken it? It's Jesus acknowledging for the first time, In the Trinity's history, in eternity past, that he knew there was separation between himself and the Father as God judged our sin in the person of Jesus. Sin was dealt with on the cross. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians, because he starts developing the theology of the cross, he said, hey guys, you don't want to be doubting the resurrection. He said, if there's no resurrection, you're still in your sins. In other words, if there's no resurrection, Friday didn't work. If there's no resurrection, it means Jesus is nothing special and death could hold him. We need a resurrection for Good Friday to work because the resurrection indicates Jesus' triumph over sin and death, which we participate in, in our triumph over sin in this life and in heaven, and ultimately our triumph over death by us having eternal life. If Jesus doesn't rise from the dead, the grave is the end for us. Our resurrection is tied to his resurrection. There's no benefit from the cross unless there's a resurrection. If you're a person here and you say, man, I don't know, I guess Jesus died because history indicates he died, but this resurrection stuff doesn't make sense to me. You don't want to be wasting your time in church. Find another religion. This one is tied to a physical resurrection. Second, the, living tomb is em- or the tomb is empty. Many saw the living, resurrected Christ. Opposition research began that first day in the morning, Sunday morning, when the body went missing. The opposition research said, the disciples stole him. Well, I love that. The disciples stole him. Isn't that kind of a tough sell when he keeps showing up for supper? The disciples stole his dead body. He sure seems to be doing well. Every opportunity existed to nip Christianity before it was born. Just keep a dead guy dead or produce the body and show he's still dead. It's not that hard. Guarding dead people is not hard. Problem was, you didn't have a dead guy, you had a living Christ. Which means third, and this is what we alluded to at the beginning, the Bible gives us only one choice. True or false? It's true or false, not true for some and false for others. I mean, you can reject the resurrection, but it either happened historically as an objective historical fact or it didn't. I'm staking my life on the fact that it did. But it either did or it didn't happen. It's not true for you and not true for somebody else. That Forget that pluralistic craziness in our world today. This one either happened or it didn't. So when it comes to Jesus, it means he's either a guy who knew he was dishonest and deceived everybody into thinking he was somebody he wasn't, which would make him deceptive and a little bit of a lunatic, or he's exactly who he said he was, promised for thousands of years since the first sin in the garden, the seed of the woman, would ultimately have victory over Satan. The promise is on the third page of the Bible and either Jesus fulfills that as the Son of God and Israel's Messiah and our Lord and Master or he doesn't. But if he did, the question is, where are you at with it? What about you? What if it's true? If it's true, it's our path back to God. It's our path to forgiveness. It's our path to living a life in the manner we were created for. It's what we're intended to be, right, with God. And that means being a Christian, being a Jesus follower. Which means really three simple things that you have to believe to be a Christian. It's very simple. We believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that these stories are true. It's history. Jesus is the Son of God. And that when he hung on that cross on Good Friday, He did bear your sins and my sins on the cross. He paid the penalty for sin as an innocent lamb of God, as a savior, the only one qualified to save the rest of us because he's the only one who was sinless. On the cross, God punished him instead of punishing you and me. And to be a Christian, we believe that what he did on the cross pays that penalty for our sins and our hope is in the cross. We trust in the cross. We trust in his payment for our sin. He took the beating so we don't have to. He was our substitute. We believe he's the son of God. We trust in the cross that he's our savior. And we allow him to be Lord of our lives. We say, you know what, Jesus? If you're the son of God and you did that for me, Whatever days I have left, they're yours. I'm yours. You're my Lord. That's what it means to be a Christian. If you've never made that commitment in your life, I just want to invite you to do that today, just to make sure in your heart of hearts that you've connected by faith with what Jesus did for you in his death and resurrection. If you want to do that today, I'd encourage you in your heart of hearts just to pray this prayer as I pray it out loud just to follow along and give a scent in your heart to this as I pray this out loud. Dear Jesus, I need a Savior. I believe you are the Son of God. I trust in your sacrifice on the cross for my sins. And because you are the resurrected, living Son of God, you have the right to rule as Lord of my life. I give you my life. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, the Bible teaches that we come into a relationship with God through faith. That's what we're talking about. If you prayed that prayer for the first time, I'd really encourage you to tell somebody, tell me, tell a staff member, tell an elder, and, and that's when we sort of cross into the Christian family. That's what the Bible teaches. It sounds overly simplistic, but it's when our heart turns to faith in Jesus Christ and we make that transition to being Christ followers. God, we thank you for your word. Thank you that we can have confidence that the resurrection is rooted in historical and objective fact by eyewitnesses. It's either true or false. It's not a matter of subjective preference. I pray that you would help us. As the disciples said to Jesus, help our unbelief, I pray that you would help us to be people who know your word, know the credibility behind the the historicity of the New Testament and of these happenings. Pray that we would, with confidence, be able to share our faith with others who need the benefit of what you did 2,000 years ago. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to bethanychapel.com and click come. Thanks again, and God bless you.